This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. As you guys know, I made a promise to only bring companies on as sponsors whose products I actually use myself and believe in, and LifeAid is no different. I've witnessed a huge reliance on energy drinks by our population, and I totally understand we are chronically fatigued. However, sadly, I've seen the ill effects that come along with these products, whether it's the cardiac arrhythmias and chest pain, the GI distress, the anxiety. And I wanted to find a product that we could use for the same effect, but that would nourish our body instead of harm our body. And that product is LifeAid. Uh, one of the things that really bolstered my belief in it was it's the chosen sponsor from the Spartan Race and the CrossFit Games, which I think are two arenas that have contributed very, very well to the health of our nation. But they've taken the natural supplements, whether it's turmeric and chamomile, the, the vitamin Bs, the, the glucosamines, and they've put them in the drinks so that they each one of them has an effect. My favorite one for us, the fatigued first responder, military, medical personnel, is the Focus Aid. And they've taken the nootropic supplements. So these are supplements that nourish the brain, that, that increase brain function without hypercaffeinating it and relying on sugar. And what really appeals to me about this is A, it works. It tastes great as well, but more importantly, it works. You get this mental clarity that was amazing, but you can also unwind at the end of your shift, whether you go back to the station, whether you get off your rotation. Um, and that's important too, because not being able to sleep when you're in your recovery time is extremely frustrating. So you can access all these products at their website, which is lifeaidbevco.com. L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. But they wanted to reach out to you guys, our audience. And so they've offered one of two deals, either $15, off a case of Life Aid, which is a 24-pack, which brings the price down to under $2 a can. So you can work with your people in your ER or your station if you want to split it up. Um, the other thing, which actually is even better value, is the subscription, the monthly delivery that they have, you get 10% off, which brings that down even further. 
both of those are also free delivery to your doorstep. So you can see there's almost a zero risk with this um, because they believe in their product. And I'm sitting here telling you because I do as well. So you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. And if you want to learn even more about this product, then listen to episode 207, where I interviewed the founder of LifeAid, Aaron Hind. Welcome to episode 245 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I am so excited to bring to you this week, Dr. Sarah Jenke. Now, Sarah is the director of the Center for Fire, Rescue, and EMS Health Research at the National Development and Research Institutes. So really what that boils down to is she brings a lot of the studies and the data to many of the areas that we as first responders have seen affecting us. Um, but many, many of these organizations require data to kind of back it up. And so this was a really great fusion of what she's seen in our population and the studies that she's done herself and her peers have done to kind of corroborate a lot of the things that we see. So before we get to this episode, please take a moment, go to whichever podcast app that you listen to this on, whether it's Stitcher or iTunes, and just take a moment and give us a rating. So a five-star rating gives us more visibility to anyone else who's looking around for a project like this. And then the other thing is use your social media and share these episodes. And you know what? One of the most powerful things that's happened so far is word of mouth. So tell the people in your department, tell your superiors, send an email, whatever it is, that there is this free resource with the greatest minds from around the planet bringing solutions to the problems that we have. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Sarah Jenke. Enjoy. Sarah, I want to start by thanking you for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Brilliant, me too. So first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am in my office, which does not happen often, but I'm um, right outside of Kansas City. So Leewood, Kansas. Brilliant. Now, were you born there? I, yeah, born not too far from here. Um, traveled around, but really like, you know, there's a lot of draw with family and I've got a lot of family right nearby. So this is home for the foreseeable future. Brilliant. Okay, so the first main question I always like is, you know, what did your parents do and how many siblings? So the kind of family dynamic. Oh, perfect. I've got a good one. Um, I'm one of eight kids and dad was a fire chief all my all my uh, formative years. So that's how I got into looking at firefighter health stuff. But yeah, dad was the fire chief and mom, even with eight kids, mom worked um, a lot. She is a med tech in a hospital and now dad Let's see, about high school and high school beginning of college, dad retired and bought a training tower, fire training tower company. So grew up in the fire service and uh, yeah, mom and dad combination of stayed home, mom combination of stayed home and, and worked growing up. I don't know how she did it with eight kids, but. No, that's amazing. I'm one of five, but eight blows mine out of the war. So. <laughs> it's still a lot though. What number are you? Uh, I'm number uh, two, the second, second born. Yeah. I'm three, so we probably have a lot in common. Yeah, probably, probably. Now, with your dad, you know, being through the fire service and ending as a chief and then having you really, uh, you know, be so embedded in the, the health side, what was some of the observation that he made with his men and women, not only when they were serving, but seeing them retire as well, as far as their health? 
You know, it was interesting. One of the things that first got me interested in this area of research, I grad school did military health research, um, but my I sat through my dad's heart attack. Um, he, he, or through his surgery, post heart attack, right around the same time that that report came out about um, from the CDC that the leading cause of on-duty deaths was cardiac related. And so, subsequently have sat through a, a few different heart surgeries for him, but he's also had cancer. Um, and on the behavioral health side, it's really interesting to study it, but to also have seen like my dad and the experience of him growing up. But, um, you know, he was with a really progressive department. He was a really progressive thinking um, chief in the fire service. So a lot of the stuff that he talked about um, way back when I was in high school is stuff that, you know, is really getting a lot of attention now, everything from like the behavioral health side of stuff to, to the, um, you know, fitness and, and nutrition stuff. So it's a, it, it's interesting to come around and sit down and talk with him now about what I see is going on and, and uh, you know, what he saw 20 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing um, you know, perception that, or, or uh, perspective, excuse me, that you have. But um, I'm sure it must be heartbreaking for him with some of the things they were trying to put in place, knowing that some of, some of these health issues that we're seeing are actually uh, preventable as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard. He's seen a lot of people. Um, he's seen a lot of people pass and a lot of people struggle. And um, I'm just I'm just really I feel really lucky that we have him every day that we have him now. So, you know, and I don't think like I think back and I think, would he be healthier now um, if he hadn't been in the fire service? Would he be a different person? I think he would be a different person. I think it shaped a lot of his personality. Um, in terms of that, but I don't know, you know, will we have less time with him? I just, I just hold on to every grandpa day. Now my kiddo is uh, grandkid 15. So, um, I appreciate every day that we have with him now, but yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. And what, just one more thing about your dad. What age was he when he first had his first health issue? Uh, he was in his, he had to have been in his fifties, like early fifties with his first heart attack. Yeah. All right. So then, so then back to you as, as a child. So, um, were you an athlete or sports person yourself back then? <laughs> I was the exact opposite of that, actually. <laughs> it's funny because I really didn't get into anything, um, fitness related until I was more like student council, um, oh, was in plays and stuff like that. But I was, I never saw myself as a like health and wellness fitness person. But then I really got, um, got into like CrossFit through grad school and things like that and have really kind of enjoyed that. I've had people challenge me on like you work out how many days a week and you don't consider yourself into wellness and fitness. But yeah, so it was, I was more late in life on that kind of stuff. Right. Now I always love asking this when I know someone does CrossFit. Do you remember your first workout? Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> Tell me about it. I hated it. Um, I think it was just like a super, super scaled Fran. And I thought I was going to like 10 squats with proper form. And I thought I was, I thought I was, I, I thought I can't, I'm not gonna be able to walk tomorrow, but you know, it's just addictive. I know, um, I feel like sometimes CrossFit gets a, a bad rap. You know, people talk about it all the time, but it's because people love it. Like you get into it and it's exciting. So yeah, no, it is. I've, I've done it for about 11 years now. And so that that in itself, just keeping you interested and keeping your training consistent is, uh, I attribute that absolutely to their philosophy. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Because I think, 
it always gives you something to strive for next. I'm not crossfitting right now necessarily because I'm um, pregnant and kind of any movement right now is a little bit painful, but, um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. And how, how far along are you? I am, oh, this is embarrassing. Uh, 24 weeks, 25 weeks, somewhere around there. Brilliant. It's my third. So <laughs> <laughs> it'll come out when it comes out. <laughs> my first one, I could tell you how many minutes I've been pregnant. This one, I'm like, ah. She'll be here eventually. Because <laughs> it's interesting. Just the reason I asked was we have like so many pregnant women in the CrossFit gym where I coach. And obviously they're not, you know, doing crazy stuff towards the end when they're full term, but they're still moving. And oh, yeah. not only is there a very minimal weight gain, like a healthy weight gain, of course you're going to gain weight. You've got, you know, you have another human growing inside you. Um, but the recovery as well, my goodness, you know, they, their babies are born and then they're, they're, you know, physically look, just a little bit different, but they're already able to move again. So oh, yeah. that's that's always been an observation for me that we've almost made it normal in in pregnant women in America that it's okay to put on a huge amount of weight. And then we see you know, the, the diabetic issues and the hypertension issues. But then, you know, these these women are just so far behind when, when they're post postpartum that a lot of them don't get back in the gym. And it's very sad to watch. Yeah, it's hard. I definitely have not stopped working out. I've just altered what I've done. My last kiddo, I was, uh, I went into labor early. And so I was at my, I was going to leave like a week before I delivered. Um, and then went into labor a week early. So I'd been in the gym the day before and everyone was like, how did you do that? And I'm like, well, it wasn't on purpose, but you got to alter stuff. I mean, stuff is your entire body is taken over by this little parasite, but (laughs) and actually, you know, it's interesting because there used to be, um, there's some hesitancy to do research on uh, exercise during pregnancy because pregnant women are considered, you know, protected in terms of research, stuff like that. So you want to be really careful. But there are a couple I worked with a, um, a scientist who did some research and found that, you know, what you would suspect that um, pregnancy during she actually looked at fetal heart development for women who were working out and found a benefit for the fetal heart development when there was when women were active during pregnancy. Yeah. When you just think about, you know, um, evolutionary as well, that, you know, when, when you were relied on to bring food back to your tribe, you're going to have to be walking around no matter how pregnant you are. Oh, yes. Thank God for grocery stores now. <laughs> All right. So then um, back to your early life. What about career goals? Did you always thought about getting into to wellness and, and the research side of that? No, no, actually, I did. A, so I started my doctoral training and I said I would do two pieces of research ever. It would be my pre-doctoral dissertation and my dissertation. And that was it because I hated the idea of research. Um, I, I actually met so my PhD is in psychology and my goal was to be a um child psych person to work with kids. And so we did that through grad school and worked in a lot of different organizations around Kansas city, working with kids and in some school settings and stuff like that. And I absolutely loved my kids. Like there's no better group to do. I I did therapy with adults, but there's no better therapy patient than kids because they're just so honest and they don't know that they should be like hiding stuff. Um, loved my kids, hated their parents. And that's not true of all parents. Like I know that there are a lot of parents who are really amazing and do great things, but 
people would bring their kids in and be like, you know, we're struggling with this. And because it's so easy with kids to kind of identify where their sticking points are, you know, I talk to the parents and say, okay, well, here's why they're struggling. Um, cause you're telling them this, that, and the other thing. And, and they, that's, you know, not within their age group. They're not understanding that. So it's just inciting some fear and anxiety. And the parents would be like, well, I'm not going to change what I'm doing. You just need to fix them. And I was like, ah, I can't do this with the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, so I decided instead of that, I would do, um, I was at the time doing some research as a, as a grad student and actually really got into that and really enjoyed it and saw, you know, where I thought I wanted to be a, a psychologist doing one-on-one work. I really saw the impact that like taking a big picture could have and that really like the science behind some of this stuff, you know, people are always like, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that cause we ran statistics and we got a statistically significant finding and, um, then how do you take that and use that to make policy change? So it's been, I've actually really um, done a complete turnaround on, on that and, and see a huge value in the research side of stuff. So I, I've enjoyed it. But yeah, it was definitely not the original plan. Yeah, it was interesting when you're talking about that because I had um, uh, Mike Ritland, who's a Navy SEAL, canine, um, canine handler and now a, a trainer. You know, it's the same thing. It's t- talking about the owners. I mean, even Caesar Milan, if you watch his stuff, you know, and it's the same with parenting. It's the same with, with horses. Same with pretty much everything is they're, they're a reflection of, of how we are. So, you know, if we're having problems with our kids, aside from obviously some, some, you know, um, wiring issue in the brain, it really is, you know, a, a, a um, a symptom of the way that we're parenting. And I think that humility is a huge thing with parenting and realizing, okay, you know what? You're right. I, I have been, you know, especially in, in divorces, for example, I have been acting in a way that is projecting on my child. So I need to, to stop doing that. Yeah. Oh, it's such a, I think kids are like little barometers for what their parents are going through. And it's, uh, it's hard. Parenting is hard. I, hardest job I think in the world, but, um, totally. And it's, it's a struggle because it's, you want to just, you know, to think, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm always doing the best, but I, as a parent, I can tell you there are totally days that I fail, (laughs) but I think you have, that's what I think with parenting. You have to be willing to look, like you said, look at yourself and say, what am I doing? What are they responding to? How am I reinforcing those behaviors or, uh, yeah, it's rough, but I just couldn't do, I couldn't do that as a career and have kids myself. I knew that, you know, there were weekends that I just sat at home and cried because I was so worried about some of the kids I worked with and, you know, you want to do something that's impactful, but I thought that's just not, there are people who, and I admire them uh, for the work they do, but it's just, I just didn't have it in me. Yeah, uh, it'd be incredibly draining. Um, all right, so then how did you find yourself initially? Was it was it the military that you started the research in? Yeah, yeah, I started doing some work that, so some of the, a couple of the senior scientists that I, that I still work with, um, did a lot of military health research at the time. So around substance, substance use and abuse, a lot, um, a lot of focus on tobacco, which some of that's been cool, like to be able to research stuff and see the policy changes and some of the publications we had, you know, 20 years ago, um, some of that they put out 20 years ago, I'm not quite that old, but, um, but close. But some of that stuff being used to like make changes in policies and policies and military tobacco policies um, has been cool. And to see kind of the impact of that um, and how some of those things were, have been cited, like in Surgeon General reports and stuff like that, it feels um, it feels like you can be part of a, you know, it, it, I think it's cool 
a couple things that I think are really amazing about and what really attracted me to this. One, you can take that and, and it can have an impact. Um, but also, I think it's amazing to ask a question that's never been asked before. You know, you can look at the peer-reviewed medical literature and do a lit review and see what's out there that, you know, that we know um, based on, on data. And you can ask a question that's in a way that's never been asked before and get an answer that's never been given before and build off of that. And so then, like, everything I do is built off the publications from, you know, five and 10 years ago. And hopefully people will take what I've done and move that, you know, what our group has done, not just me. I, I don't mean, I mean, um, we, when I say I, but take that and like build off of that. We, there are pieces of knowledge that just were not out there on firefighter health 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask that. So you're in the, you're in the military environment where, you know, obviously there seems to be a huge amount of research from, from every area that a lot of uh, other professions then glean from and use themselves from my perspective and i might be completely wrong it seems like our profession is horrendous at research you know and especially in the wellness side there's there's very very spotty and few and far between which is obviously you know why i want to talk to you because you're one of the people that i know does that when you first entered our profession did you see the kind of the barren landscape that i'm i'm kind of perceiving yeah no you're right on so I, it's funny, I was having a conversation um, with Billy Goldfeder one time, and he goes, you know, we've done more, there's been more firefighter health research in the last 10 years than the 100 years before that. And sometimes, um, and I say this with love, Billy's full of shit. So he just says stuff, and I was like, he doesn't know that that's actually true. But I went back and looked at the numbers. So I went into PubMed, put in firefighter, and it is about 70% of the research done on firefighter health has been done um, in the last about 12 years. So, uh, or the hits that came up on that. And so there, if you look like historically, there were a few, there, not a few, there were, there were a handful of articles on firefighters and cancer, but I think that what really has sparked, I mean, kind of all the other health behaviors are, are really the last a little bit more than a decade. I think it was sparked by a few different things. 9-11, I think definitely sparked a lot of it. Um, AFG started funding research on firefighter health. And I think that was, you know, largely post, um, 9-11 focus on realizing we needed to, you know, be be as focused on the um, folks we're putting on rigs as we are on the rigs. Um, I think that was part of it. And then I think as people started researching it, I know, you know, the AFG folks um, really, there was a, a strong push to do some research with some resistance to that in the fire service, but they got funding for that for just a tiny pot of money. And then you had this group of researchers that really, um, picks that up as their cause, like Denise Smith and Stefano Scales and and Gavin Horn, who um, really got, were kind of in the early stages and I think really inspired other folks to look at it. And then the more, it was an incredibly understudied group. And then the more you look at it, like it's the perfect, fire, fire service is the perfect storm for both unhealthy behaviors and for poor health outcomes. You know, if you think about everything from, the shift work to the, um, you know, responding to everybody's worst day to just the physiologic strain of fighting a fire. You know, you, it's a, um, for, for people who do research, like it was, it's amazing that there are so many questions that are left unanswered. What, um, Dr. Gist, who's with the Kansas city fire department, he's been around fire service for a long time. He was uh, one of my professors in grad school and, He's one of the folks who said, hey, you should look into this. Look at the stuff that you're doing in the military and how could this transfer to the fire service? 
And um, he, he goes, sir, it's not even like, he goes, we don't even have to start with the low hanging fruit. Like in terms of research questions, we can start picking up like the rotting fruit that's already fallen off the tree and is laying on the floor. Like some of the most basic research questions we just don't have for the fire service. So it's, uh, it's been an interesting time, but if you look now, there are a lot of people doing, I mean, I've, um, I've been on four dissertation committees in the last year where the focus was firefighter health stuff. Um, and I've talked to the other thing is within the fire service, there's a lot more value on it. The number of, um, folks I've talked to who are getting their dissertation, you know, working on their dissertations on something related to firefighter health. It's awesome. The number of people within the fire service that are, you know, trying to bridge that gap. So I think, I think it's a cool time. Yeah, no, it is absolutely. When you talk about the the research, it's, it's good to hear that because so many of us are required to get degrees, but you end up doing, you know, very two dimensional business degree, you know, whatever it is, you know, and there's so many areas that we can actually research that will truly have an impact on the professions that we work in. The other thing that I think is so cool is the number of times that people will say that, you know, number of emails or calls I'll get, or I'll do presentations and people will say, do you have data for this? You know, we want to, um, we want to set up a new pregnancy policy and maternity leave policy or, you know, breastfeeding policy. What data do you have for this? And it's awesome that the fire service is now across the board asking for that. You know, you have um, Lori is doing the um, Institute for Public Safety Data. Uh, the fact that there's an institute for that, and now you can look at, at everything with operations and what's the data behind it and what's the, so it's not, you know, I think it used to kind of be like, well, we think this, or, you know, we have, I had, um, when I very first started this, you know, risk management wants to take out the gyms because they think too many people are getting injured. You know, anecdotally, they feel like too many people are getting injured working out in the firehouse. Now we have data that looks not only at injuries on uh, injuries that occur during training, but for people who work out on duty, we know that they're half as likely to get a non-exercise injury. So that's catastrophic fire ground injuries. Well, if you look at one department, you don't have that data, but now that we can look at it across, you know, that, that one came from a study of 24 departments, um, 13 randomly selected career departments. Now that we have that data, when risk management goes, well, should we take out the, the gym equipment? No, because here's why. So it's really cool that I think at least, and maybe, you know, maybe when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but I have a lot of examples of where people have been asking for data to support the decisions they have to make to just to support the justifications. I mean, I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, it's interesting to, to watch the, the kind of research landscape, because like you said, there just isn't that much around or hasn't been until recently. Obviously we're going to talk about sleep in a bit. That's one of my real, uh, um, you know, soapbox topics at the moment, because I think it's the underlying cause for so many issues that we see. But, you know, but then we, there's a, there's a part of society now that is all about research. Oh, I need the numbers. I need the statistics. And, and I think good research has absolute value. But then you've also got to balance that with common sense. You know, if, if you've seen yourself the effects of sleep deprivation, if they are using it in the special forces to simulate interrogation and, you know, get people to drop out if other um, industries like the airline industry and the trucking industry have caps on how long you can be awake 
do you is is your first step to demand research or can you also combine that with some common sense and say you know what maybe maybe this is an issue and then let's find some studies even if it's not for higher service from the military whatever or from the 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 uh, transportation agencies to back it up but it doesn't have to be apples to apples for you to apply it to a specific topic oh totally well i mean if you look at the funding that goes into dod research and health research and just that whole, you know, congressionally mandated, if, if we aren't taking advantage of all the research that's been done with other fields, it might not be exactly the same fit, but there's a lot that we know. And I think, you know, we, so that, you know, I'm just sitting here arguing about the benefit of research to, for the big picture, but I think you take that and then you also have to look at like me individually, like how do you biohack yourself? So you know what works for you and what doesn't like we can tell you on average, what we see. And we can give you a 95% confidence interval. But they're also, you know, the high end and the low end. I think you can't assume that you're, you know, the, the off the off the 95% um, of the population on most stuff. But there are some things. And I think you have to figure out for yourself, like what we know when we report stuff, we report the average. So the mean is da 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 da. But I think you have to look at yourself too and go, okay, where do I fall on that? How does that interact with the other things that I have? I think sleep is a great example. You know, I think there's great research um, that, I, and I think I mentioned this when I talked to you before, but Dr. Walker's book, Why We Sleep, is amazing. And he talks about kind of all the implications with sleep and what we know about sleep and how people are really bad at judging their own um, their own deficits from a lack of sleep. And I think you really have to look at yourself and pay attention to yourself, pay attention to the kind of the signs and symptoms that you see and figure out, you know, where's the tipping point for you. So I absolutely agree. I think you've got to, I think you take the research and the big picture, but then you have to apply it to your, to your own life. And I think you, we do have to look outside the fire service because we get, I know AFG funding is like five, oh, five to eight grants a year that they fund. Um, DOD funds hundreds on military populations. Like you said, it's not exactly the same, but it can give you like a better, bigger picture. And so I think, and, and you know, there are other, it's hard to get um, fire service research funded for, like through NIH because it's relatively a small, a small group. Um, it can be done, you know, we, we've done it, but it's, it's a challenge. So I think if we wait for everything to come out with what, what we know about the fire service, then, we'll, you know, there's, you're going to be waiting forever, but there you're right. You're absolutely right that there is a lot of other research out there that's applicable. Yeah. All right. Well, then, so you're in the military arena. You you, you enter the fire service. Um, what were some of just the, the health issues that you were observing before you, you chose a specific area to research yourself? So, you know, we knew from that CDC report that cardiac was an issue. Um, and through some of the really great work um, of like Denise Smith up at Skidmore in, in Illinois, she's got a joint appointment, but she'd done a lot on cardiac. So we knew that. But really, the first study that our group did funded by the American Heart Association based on those things was a qualitative study. Um, and we went and talked to people around the fire service. So I had my assumptions based on what I see like in the Kansas City landscape, sat down with a lot of folks that I grew up with, fire chiefs that I'd known since I was a kid, um, and said, you know, what do you think? What, it, what questions do we need to ask when we go out and do this? And then we went and sat down. I think we ended up having uh, – 34 different departments and organizations represented in our final sample and sat down like around a lot of kitchen tables 
and uh, a lot of, you know, did a lot of taking people to lunch and saying, tell us what you think about health and wellness. Like, what are the issues? What are the concerns? Um, talk to folks from the organization. So IAFC, IAFF, NBFC, interviewed them, and then just a ton of career firefighters, volunteer firefighters, combination um, officers, chiefs, and, and because I didn't want to assume that what I saw was consistent across the country. Some of it was, some of it wasn't. Um, and you know, the big things, cardiovascular disease was definitely, um, getting a lot of attention. Behavioral health was getting a ton of attention in terms of what we talked about around the, the kitchen table. Um, some stuff started coming out even early on about alcohol use and, um, you know, having been around the fire service, I had my assumptions, but, um, it, it was right on in terms of rates of, of use, I think, um, <clears throat> because I came from a tobacco background, we talked about that. And that was interesting because especially talking about smoking, um, low rates in the fire service, which we confirmed with quantitative data. Uh, but a lot of, a lot around why there may be some low rates of cigarette use in the fire service uh, and why they dropped so significantly. So those were some of the early things then basically designed the next phase studies. I, and, and in the early, so I'll tell you, it's probably, gosh, I think that one got funded. I think by now it's probably been... Oh God, I'm 40 and it was, I think I was just out. So 20, about a dozen years ago, um, cancer was coming up as a topic, but was a little bit less focused on at the time. I think that, um, it was assumed that there were high rates of cancer, but not a ton of conversation around probably why other than just well, the smoke, um, sleep was, a was a topic of conversation though. At the time, I think that's really increased in the last, Oh, I would say even five years. And then probably suicide. I heard in some of the very early conversations and meetings I sat in on, people would go, well, what about suicide? But it wasn't um, it wasn't way early on something that was necessarily on the radar. And then um, as things kind of have progressed and as we've found as we found what we found, I think some of the newer topics are things around reproductive health, women's health, um, yeah, a lot more focus on cancer. So we've done some more studies on on cancer. Our group has. I mean, I kind of just like to research whatever the fire service has a question about. So, yeah, all of it, all of. It. Well, and that's just it. So, so you've pretty much hit the gamut on every every disease that a human being can can get. And I think that's like you said, that perfect storm. That's exactly what we're up against. You know, it's not um, uh, what they call that. The, the miners would get. Um, is it mind lung or there was there was a phrase for it but um but you know so that we're just getting everything and i think that is is you know something that we need to take a step back and not hone in too narrowly and get too myopic on for example you know carcinogens of course that's part of it absolutely but there's a much bigger picture and if you know if there were just a couple of disease processes that were were spiking versus the rest then we could really focus more all of them. Well, what I find so interesting, and I feel like the researchers that, you know, when I, when I talk to folks that they're kind of coalescing around, it used to be that it's like either you were into studying cardiovascular disease or you were into studying cancer. Um, and then there was the behavioral health folks kind of out there too. And it, there used to kind of be camps I felt like within the fire service where the conversation was either you're you know, either you're focused on one or the other. Um, 
or one of the three really. But now, especially like I've heard um, the last time I sat through Denise's presentation, which I love Denise and her presentations. And she actually was bringing up and some of the, you know, she's talking about, which it's really easy to talk about like fitness and nutrition as a cardiovascular risk factor, but she had put some slides in on physical fitness and its relationship to, um, cancer development and risk for cancer. And we have some, um, th there's a lot of great data talking about bringing in other, other outside, um, like epi data, there's great data about where you see increased risk for cancer with alcohol use. And interestingly, for several cancers that's, that are common with firefighters, it's right at 3.5 drinks. And when we did a nutritional epi survey where we did 20 departments across the country, like Maine to Guam, we did 24-hour food recalls and asked them about everything they ate and drank. We did an on-duty and off-duty day. On average, when people were drinking, they were drinking 3.5 drinks. So some of those, and then, so if you think about alcohol use as being sometimes a result of behavioral health, um, you know, as, as a coping mechanism, and then it also increased the risk for cancer and it playing into cardiovascular disease, like it all plays together. And so, you know, when you have, I don't think you can talk about any of the health behaviors that underlie the disease processes. They're all intermingled and they're all, you know, you're not, it's not like you're, it's not like poor health only contributes to cardiovascular disease or, or low fitness only contributes to cardiovascular disease. It can also put you at increased risk for cancer. And then the behavioral health and the interaction between fitness and behavioral health. I mean, I think where, what I think is so exciting about right now is all the conversation that's going on around how these underlying risk factors are, are risk factors for all the health outcomes that we're concerned about in the fire service. So it's not, you know, we're not like in silos. We're, we're fighting, fighting the good fight on a lot of fronts for a lot of health outcomes and benefits. So if that makes sense. No, it does. And that's exactly what this podcast is about. I mean, there's, there's everyone from, you know, mental health professionals to nutritionists to coaches to, you know, uh, doctors that prescribe, you know, cannabis and CBD. I mean, there's just everything because, you know, there's, it's a global thing. And it's funny, I've always made the comparison of a, an A&P textbook. You know, you've got the renal system and the cardiovascular system. And, and that's not the, how the human body is. They're, like you said, they all interrelate. So you've got all these pillars of health that you have to simultaneously address. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Because they're all, and the behavioral health that like overlays and underlays everything else and sleep that overlays and underlays everything else. I mean, it's just... I mean, it's cool. It's an awesome time to be, you know, doing this kind of research. But it also on the other side of that, sometimes like, where do you start? But the other, I go back and forth. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, there are days where I think like, what, like, this is a waste of time. Nothing is going to change. And then there are other days where I'm like, super amped. And I feel like things are changing people. You know, there's that saying in the fire service, a hundred years of tradition unimpeded by progress. Um, I don't think that's true on the health front. Like I hear, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a hammer, but I feel like I see a lot of nails out there and a lot of people who are talking about this stuff and who are interested in this stuff and making shifts and really working, you know, and, and maybe I'm just around early adopters for it, but there is a lot more conversation. The fact that you have a whole podcast on this topic that people listen to and engage with, I think is telling. And I think, it feels less hopeless when you realize there are a lot of things that you can do to take control of your own health. Absolutely. You know, 
I feel like with the exposure stuff in particular, you know, it feels like, oh, we're just all fucked. Can we cuss on this? Yes, please. Cuss away. (laughs) Thank God, because I, I, yeah, I'm not good at censoring myself. But, um, you know, And there are some things you can do on the fire ground. There's some things, but if you really want to reduce risk, it is way beyond using wipes and gross decon, which I think are important things. But if you really want to reduce risk, it does come back to that everyday stuff that you can make choices on, which is awesome, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to I want to dive into sleep first because again, you know, most most of these conversations, it's it's exercise, it's clean cab, you know, and that's great, and we'll we'll definitely get to that. But from my observation, and then now three years in, I did a little post the other day about this. I've I've had experts from the Navy, the Navy SEALs, the the Army, the uh, the high level athletic coach world, um, and they all agree on the sleep thing. So so my I, in, in the 15 years I've been a fireman, I've, I've come across departments that, are, oh yeah, we did a sleep study. People came in and, you know, and then they gave us, you know, some of the guys got CPAPs and it was awesome. And that was it. So that's like me taking a, a razor and running around cutting people's arms and then going, oh yeah, you're bleeding. Here's a band aid. Not <laughs> stopping the lunatic Englishman with the knife that keeps cutting people, you know? So, but there's the, what I found extremely frustrating and, and you know, is, is my, my goal is, there's never any conversation about changing the shifts. And I'm not talking about the shift lengths. I think it's universally received that for the fire service specifically, 24 hours is the most doable shift with all the things that we have to do, the training and and everything else. But the Northeast, the entire Northeast does the 2472. But then you mention a 42-hour work week to the rest of the country and they look at you like you're asking for a golden unicorn. And, you know, when, when all these other experts and all this research, research has shown, you know, what it's like being awake for 24 hours and certainly more than that. And then how important it is for recovery, uh, you know, what it does to your hormones, how it increases long term, the cardiovascular, the, uh, the cancer, the mental health issues, and then the musculoskeletal injuries too. You, you, you know, you heal when you sleep. When you factor all those in, it's staring at us in the face. And, and yet there's this huge resistance and, you know, they talk about everything but, but for, for me, I think the, the universal standard for the American fire service and maybe the global fire service should be a 42 hour work week. You work 24 hours and have 72 off to recover. And I think that would overturn a huge portion of many of these health, um, you know, the epidemics that we're seeing. Now, I know that was a huge kind of build up to my question of your observation. You've seen departments from around around the the country what is your philosophy on on giving people more recovery in between these shifts to affect their health i think that it's a great idea i don't think i've seen any issue as political and as um challenging within the fire service as shift as as shift um, structures and and shift schedules and I think a lot of what's driving it has nothing to do with the health research as much as it does kind of the politics and the practicalities. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, I always hate when people, when I'm presenting and people are like, so what do you think about this shift schedule? Because so much of the conversation are like, we can give you the data all day long. Um, but I think in a lot of ways it is, the data is more ignored on this topic than any other topic in the fire service. So I think it's a, uh, 
I think it's, I, I, I think it would be awesome. And I think you would, I would love to study that. I would love to study that, switching people to that shift schedule and see the benefits. Um, but I think that it's an interesting and uniquely controversial issue in the fire service. Yeah, and it's crazy because, I mean, we are all doing exactly the same jobs, yet there are cities and counties in America that are literally working two full days more than their neighbors, and that's just insanity per per week. Two more eight-hour you know, portions. And so so what my argument has been, because the, the knee-jerk that you get is, well, how are we going to afford that? Well, how much money do you spend on your workman's comp, on these injuries, on these disability claims, on these, you know, deaths, God forbid, you know, on these mistakes that we make because we're so chronically sleep deprived. So we're being sued, you know, add all that together. I guarantee you that will be a multiple of the smaller amount that you would need just to put one more shift in place at which would elevate everything that you do. Wouldn't that be a cool study? to do the before and after and look at things like injury and lost work days and, and even overtime. I mean, if you think about the, um, you know, paying overtime related to, to, um, related to injury, um, it'd be, that'd be such a cool study to do. I would love to do that. So if any department that ever, anyone that's listening to this has a, uh, department that's switching to shifts, I would love to do the cost. But in that, I mean, really, when I say political, I think a lot of it does come back to that. It comes back to the um, the money, you know. And people don't want to invest in stuff that where the payout's going to be two years from now. They want the payoff to be today. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the politics comes in. They want to be the administrator that saved money that year rather than being the progressive one that invests. So, so if that study hasn't been done specifically, let's shift, you know, change the the viewpoint a little bit. In the fire service, what is, I mean, you don't have to give me a dollar amount, but how significant is the cost of the ill health of these firefighters to the department? Uh, oh, I think it's huge because I think it's across, um, you know, I think it's, like I said, it's everything from overtime costs to injuries to kind of just the mental health stuff. Um, so, so I think it, I, it has, I don't think it's been well quantified, but I do know, so the study uh, or the group out of Harvard just looked at, um, like, uh, I think they looked at motor vehicle accidents and sleep and saw a difference, um, a difference there. So, I mean, it's, uh, and that's kind of one of the hard things about, about quantifying that is it's, I think the impact is so diffuse and it's so, well, one of the challenges with studying the fire service in general is you have 30,000 separate kingdoms, right? So it's not like the military where if you say everyone's going to take this survey, everyone takes that fucking survey. Um, so to be able to get the variety and the, and the challenge also like with the, with studying sleep and ha- like the impact of sleep one, how, how do you know what is associated with sleep? And the other challenge is different departments have different, different departments. If you look at, um, how they operate, even within departments, you have, you know, you've got like retirement stations where people don't get up, you know, once a a rotation, they get up at night. Um, And then you have stations within the same department that you don't sleep at all. And so one of the challenges with trying to like calculate a return on investment or something like that is you have both of those in the same department. And that's one of the challenges they think with deciding on shifts is, 
you know, do you, who do you who do you plan for? Do you plan for your retirement station? Do you plan for your busiest station? Do you plan for the average? Um, and then what do you what are you going to quantify? When I talk to like health economists, they are like, okay, so what numbers would we be looking at? I mean, you would be looking at everything from injury and motor vehicle accidents to which is why you would really need like an interrupted time series design. Um, everything from motor vehicle accidents to to injuries, fire gun injuries, exercise injuries. Um, you can look at just self-reported satisfaction. Mental health is going to be a hard thing to, to measure, but um, it, it's it's a it's a in terms of a research question and data, and that's where I think you have to kind of go back to does it make sense to like let's be a little bit logical and in what way would a twenty four seventy two not benefit? No, ex- exactly, and I, I, I get that sometimes with the with the quiet versus busy shift, and one of the worst classes i've ever been to i went to to one i won't say which conference it was at a conference and it was uh, you know fixing the sleep issues in the fire service and it was just that all right so you're now going to rotate your firefighter from the busy station to the quiet station for a bit and and that might look great if you if you're doing a little napoleon action pushing your soldiers around with a with a piece of wood around a you know a battle board on a table the reality is that's complete bs you know you're not you're not going to be able to just tell someone to pack up after eight hours and go to another station murphy's law you're going to get your ass handed to you there because you're the black cloud anyway but um but yeah i mean you should be catering to the busiest ones and then if there's more downtime well lo and behold you can train more you know we don't we don't just run calls and that's what kills me about some of the philosophy there should be that built-in time for training for rest for all these other things and if there are slower stations and yeah like you said you you transition as you get you know more experience if you want to go to an outlying station well that's an inbuilt thing but many of the departments i've worked for there is no quiet station anymore all these urban departments there's no quiet part of new york city of 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 la unless you're you know way way out these these men and women are you know running maybe not as many calls as crenshaw or you know the some of the the busy areas but we're all running and if you're not running then then you just apply not busy work but more opportunity to to get yourself better more training that kind of thing but but to say oh what if that guy isn't working as hard you know well does the security guard in an apartment complex always running around with a flashlight and a gun looking for bad guys no sometimes he's just sitting there you know greeting people at the door that's that's the way firefighters are not supposed to be seen to be working for 24 hours straight no i i agree and i think the challenge is that that it's so different at different places but i don't i mean most firefighters especially early on in their, at least the first half of their career, like you don't want to typically be at just a slow station until you're completely burned out. And then you've had, you've got all those other issues of years of chronic sleep deprivation and all the other stuff. Uh, This is why it's an awesome uh, area to research because it's never boring. Absolutely. I mean, it would be, it would be amazing. And like I said, for me, the common sense side and then adding the research from all these great minds that have, have done it in their fields you know, I'm already completely convinced, which is why I'm beating the drum, as it were. But um, and if there was nowhere in America doing 42 hours, then I would get more of the uphill battle mentality. But you know, the, if the average work week in America is what 37 hours for a civilian, then why are you asking the people that are going to be up at 3 a.m. working on your five-year-old to be way more sleep deprived than the person bagging your groceries? To me, that's the most common sense way of putting it. Yeah. 
No, that's a good point. I would love to see it. Yeah. All right. Um, well, then transitioning to to health overall, um, a lot of the, the guests I've had have kind of observed the same statistics, but I'd love to hear yours. The the numbers I hear is that, that we, the first responder community, uh, die, I've heard, between 12 and 16 years younger than the average civilian, about five years after retirement. What have been your findings as far as longevity of the men and women in, in our professions? So I would love to see, I have heard that number. I've heard that number from when we very first started this research, but I've never been able to track down actual numbers on that. And so I had, like, if you look at Doug Daniel's study from NIOSH where he did the cancer one and you look at kind of overall death, it doesn't look like firefighters in, like, overall causes are dying younger. But you would also expect them to die way older because of the healthy worker effect, right? So, so which is interesting. And I think, so I've tried to track down, if, if you have any data on that, I would love to see it because I've heard that. And I've heard, you know, that's why we can give such good retirements because folks can die, you know, because they die on average five years after retirement. Um, but I've never been able to track that down numbers-wise. So I would love to know. I mean, I think there are, so if you look at like the data on cancer, you look at that. And you do see that, you know, firefighters are at increased risk of several different types of cancers. They're increased risk of dying of, of, of both getting and dying of several different types of cancers. And how big that risk is varies based on the type of cancer it is. But um, I, I would I would love to see the actual data on that. The other thing that I think about that, though, is I think sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because I've heard that from people like, well, you know, shit, why do I have to work out? I'm going to die five years after I retire anyway. Um, and so then I do worry that there's some self-fulfilling prophecy in that belief because people are less likely to take their health seriously because they feel like they're just destined to die. Yeah. Now, I think an another area that, that was interesting from Keith Tyson from um, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network, um, he made a great, great point. I retire, like I am actually officially retired at the moment. Um I'm not a firefighter on any statistic whatsoever. So I get hit by a car by tomorrow. I, I, I don't feature on any fire statistics. So that's the other problem. I think it was hard to track us because I think observationally, we all see our men and women dropping like flies, you know? So, so I think we can see that at least the ill effect of, of at least some of them. Obviously, some, um, you know, live great long lives. But, but the other thing is how many of us are truly being followed all the way through retirement to death? I don't think there's, there's that you know, uh, good of study out there to really follow it. Right. So it isn't. So it, the other thing is volunteer firefighters. Like if you look at occupational codes, um, bond, they don't ever ask, what do you volunteer for? So volunteer firefighters. And while some do, you know, while some don't get that much exposure based on where they're at, there are volunteer firefighters that work, you know, it's basically a second full-time job. Um, they are included in the general population statistics. So anyone that's retired and then volunteers are all in that. But also if you look at rates, so rates of the way that it's kind of funky. So you look at like um, cohort studies and you look at like rates of cancer in the fire service. When you compare that to the general population, there are firefighters in the general population too. So you're looking at, unless you're doing a study where you pulled all the firefighters out, but then again, you know, you don't know if they're, if you're including volunteers in that. Um, general population numbers include firefighters. So it's really an interesting, um, 
I think I think we're underestimating a lot of the risk. Now there is. I'm so excited about this. Have you um, have you heard about the study that NIOSH is getting or the um, cohort that NIOSH has been funded to do? I mean, you pro- I know you've probably heard of the cancer cohort that was legislated, but what they're doing with that? Have you talked to Kenny Fent at all about that? Because it's gonna be awesome. No, please tell us. Oh my God, I'm so excited about this. It's the hugest undertaking. I do not. He has an amazing team at NIOSH. So they um, legislated this cancer registry for firefighters, right? And it was, I think it was passed, uh, I don't think it's even been quite a year. And then, of course, they it was passed as an unfunded mandate, but now they've, they've mandated funding for it. But they're, instead of just looking at the cancer registry, so traditional cancer registries, you know, they have the details about the tumor and all that kind of stuff. They're going to do this as an exposure registry. So they, and they're not recruiting yet, but once they do, this is going to be huge for the fire service. It will be, people will self-select in, but they want to get a huge number of firefighters. Um, it, career volunteer, they're looking at how can they specifically get more women into the study, more minorities, more wildland firefighters. Um, and they will basically create this national cohort of firefighters across every spectrum collect information on them periodically, and then be able to follow them into retirement and connect to death certificate data. So some of these questions that, like I, you know, like I said, like, I haven't actually seen data on that. There will be data on that as this cohort moves forward. It's going to be fucking awesome. Like retired firefighters, they're going to ask, you know, there's some exposure questions in there. Um, but it'll ask like, and it'll pull from the cancer registries and all that type of stuff. But oh my, that, it's going to be uh, like I want everyone's efforts once they open recruitment for that to like push that out as much as they can to every person that'll listen because that is where we will get some of the data to questions we've just never ever been able to answer because it's just that from the scientific perspective it's too difficult to answer. But they're looking at what other you know what other. Um, questions do you ask? Like they were talking about the last fall I was on with them, you know, do we ask questions? You know, can we add questions about sleep? Can we add questions? You know, and you always like, of course you want to ask everything. So they're trying to balance out like, what do we ask? and What do we not ask? But my God, that's going to, can you imagine what we will know 10 years from now based on just that? Yeah, no, that would be amazing. And it's funny. Uh, I was talking to Dr. Kurt Parsley and the, the presumption kind of, uh, laws came up in the conversation and he was saying you know that that because he's even aware he's a navy seal um that became a doctor but that you know so many of these men and women get it and then and then they're basically you know stonewalled into giving up you know what i mean so so they fight and fight and fight um and because they want them to prove it and, and kirk was like the reality is if you're a shift worker that in itself should be a presumption you shouldn't have to prove anything else because we know that sleep deprivation shift work is i think i think it's a class 2a carcinogen the same as smoking so it's a known carcinogen anyway so you kind of just kind of reminded me of that fact too is that yeah sleep is a huge thing because that in itself should cover the presumption one would think. So I'll tell you, because I do actually quite a bit of work. Um, we our, our team does a lot of consulting for some attorneys that do. I, I can tell you that almost everyone gets denied um, in most states when they first submit for coverage for cancer. Um, we But we do some work with some attorneys. And back to, like, why does it matter what your individual health behaviors are? One, the attorneys that we work with tend to be um, – 
I, I can't imagine that they're not selective with the cases that they take because pretty much anyone I get from them that where they went, hey, what does it look, you know, what does the epi literature say about this? They tend to be um, relatively healthy folks who I we've had one past smoker, one smoke tobacco user. Um, so we have to dig into that literature, but they, we do have to look at what was their alcohol consumption? What was their tobacco consumption? What was, because so many of those other health behaviors are related, um, that you really have to argue and you have to have some strong, you know, it has to be one of the cancers that is covered well in the literature, um, that you can, you know, trace back to increased risk among firefighters. But I mean, I get, I don't agree with it, but I get why the workers come are fighting against it because once you start paying these out and once, you know, case law is set for the way these laws are read, like it's going to be expensive. It's going to be expensive to take care of these people. I still think we should do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, shift work, we, and usually we cover shift, we cover shift work and then the exposures to, cause they're different cancers. Um, they're related to like increased risk. Benzene exposure is found to be in, it related to certain cancers. And so that's where we go outside the fire service literature, but can look at like pH, PAH exposure, um, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals. Like, you know, that's obviously related to prostate cancer. And then you trace back in the literature, like where Kenny and, and Gavin's studies, um, the UL and this stuff it, it has documented those exposures on the fire ground. It's, it's a challenge. It seems like it should be obvious. You, you know, I'll get on deposition. People will be like, well, how do you know that this, that firefighter was exposed to asbestos? And it's like, well, look around the fucking room. Like this room is full of asbestos. <laughs> if it's fire, it, there are going to be ultrafine particulates that go into the air that then like, I don't see why we're arg- having this argument, but um, yeah, and, and shift shift work is related to the development of a lot of cancers. You know, in, that interrupted sleep and the you know it, two decades of interrupted sleep. So, so the individual risk factors matter. The other thing that matters for those cases is um, exposure records. Not that you know what was in each fire, but we know like from from the work coming out of Illinois and and UL and, and NIST like the average room and contents fire has, and you can measure those things. Um, there's some cool studies. We actually have a study right now. We're doing this, um, Kim Anderson up in, uh, Oregon developed, she spent four years developing what looks like a live strong bracelet, but she can measure 1500 volatile organic compounds. And so we have, have put them on firefighters, both in the big, um, prospective cohort study that Jeff Burgess started and, and working with Kenny Fence Group, but also um, two departments here in Kansas City, put them on, had them on off, on duty and off duty and said, and we're going to be able to look at the, the um, profiles of the carcinogens th- that they were exposed to. And we have records from the departments. So it's kind of like now we can say, so the average fire, not that there is an average fire, but if you think about just the standard room and contents with, you know, current polyester filled furniture and, and made of plastics. Um, what are people ex- are, are exposed to? So, but you still have to, for the attorneys that have a list of here's the, you know, 1500 fires that I went to over the course of my career. I'm going to bet one of those had asbestos. My thing as well is financially after you paid for that entire court case, could you have not just paid for the first responder and be done with it in the first place? So that's where some states are moving. Um, uh, Colorado is doing it. Um, New York and ugh, I want to say North Carolina, but I may just be making that up. 
But there are a couple of states that they do that where they now have a separate trust that they've set up. And when you get as a firefighter, you get diagnosed for it, for that type of cancer. They basically within two weeks cut you a check. So there's been debate about that. Like typically in those in the states that do have that, they don't cover volunteers. So that is is a, a shortcoming. Um, and then the other thing is I've talked to folks who feel like the amount that is paid out isn't high enough. So it's not enough to actually cover it. Then you do say, you know, yeah, you have to fight it. And so often the cases are, you know, one for, well, there's a firefighter at Ram Kansas City that was just, it was all over the paper because it was kind of a big deal um, in terms of like the case law that came down around it. But it was, uh, I think he was 10 years at post his first filing before he got coverage. I mean, it went all the way through. Um, and then he, and then he, you know, he got coverage, which was awesome, but then he passed away. And so it's, you know, which is great to take care of his family. I, I absolutely think that should happen. But like, if you're dying of cancer, do you really want to spend it? I love the attorneys I work with. They're fantastic people, but I would not want to spend my last days hanging out with boys. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, I do. And then that's again. So all this expense that we're seeing goes back to what we're talking about first let's focus on prevention so we're not yeah. watching our men and women like we saw with John Stewart you know these these poor frail skeletons that were once incredibly athletic first responders you know literally taking their fast few breaths through their nasal cannula and and they get the uh, the judgment and then and then they die you know that that yes it takes care of the family but is that what the family want no they probably couldn't care less about that money they want their their loved one back yeah yeah Ugh. Yeah. Well, now I'm just depressed. <laughs> well, you came to the right show. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, switching again, because this is awesome. I'm loving this conversation because we're really getting to, to kind of pull out some some things between the lines. There's been some, some talk about carcinogens actually within the gear, like in the manufacturing of our gear. Is that something that's come across your radar? It has. It has. And, you know, I, I think the group that I have to say – um, that I most admire. I love Pat Morrison with the union. I really just have a huge amount of, of respect for him. And I think I like his approach. So there's been that conversation about, you know, the, the PFAS and the gear, eight chain versus six chain. Um, and you know, we know, we know it's in there. Like everyone's known that it's there. The question is, is it coming out off? Right. It's a super hard scientific question, um, to look at because if you look at gear, that's been out for a while you know they so they changed right they changed the requirements or the regulations around it so we know that the newer gear shouldn't have this aging older gear may but the question is is with time and where is it starting to come off but if you have time and where that also means that it's been in fires where we know that these chemicals are present so is it from the gear is it from the fire is it from but what I um, what the the group that I most look to for the stance on this really is Pat and his you know they they're funding some research on it. I know Dr. Peasley's um, work is he's you know moving forward and and trying to really answer that question. Um, and then the the other side of it is the big concern for a lot of these carcinogens is is and I know from Dr. Peasley's talks like the what some of the big concern is mostly it has to be you know it it's the way it gets into your system is like through groundwater and through drinking. And so where they look at like military bases where this has been an issue, it's because of the groundwater contamination. So then the question is like, 
are you post incident when the, all the water runs into the city, you know, the sewer, then is that contaminating the city? Is that unsafe? You know, I think Dr. Peasley in his presentation, I believe he actually had one that said, um, I think, although I could be wrong. So I would well, say, don't quote me on this, but I'm on a podcast though. Um, but I do believe as my qualifier that he had one that like a slide that said, don't lick your gear. Um, how do you handle that? Like, is stuff coming off? How do we know if it's coming off? So I think it's an interesting time for that kind of stuff. I know that there are a lot of, there's a lot of belief that maybe it's, you know, been some sort of big conspiracy by the gear manufacturers, um, that they've known this and known that it's unsafe for a long time. Um, you know, you have to have a moisture barrier, right? And we know that that is a good moisture barrier. You don't want people getting steam burns. And when I talk to folks in the gear business, you know, people that I've talked to way before this topic ever came up, um, I, I can't imagine there's a huge conspiracy that they were purpose that they would ever purposely put anyone in, in harm's way. I think if it is something that is, if it is flaking up, I think we need to know. Um, but then how do we fix, you know, you do good until you know better and then you do better. And that's where I think we are on the gear issue. It's definitely come up. It's, and it's a really heated conversation, um, which I understand. But I also think back to it's not a singular cause. I also think, you know, I, one thing I do worry about with this conversation is I hear people pointing to that as that's the reason people are getting cancer. And I can guarantee to you, even if worst case scenario, this shit's just flying off left and right, it is not the only reason firefighters are getting cancer. And that's, I, I, I'm all for the research and that's why I respect what Pat's doing. And I really watch him and, and, and his position on it. Cause I think he's well-informed on the topic and, and really listens to all sides. Um, and then they're, they're funding the research on this topic, which I just think is fantastic. Um, but my, that's my big concern with it is that, that we're looking at this as the cause of firefighter cancer. And it's just, not the case. It, it, it could contribute to it. And it's clearly a carcinogen. And I think, you know, we should do everything we can, but that's not the cause of cancer and they contribute. It's not, it's not the cause. Yeah. No, and I agree. I mean, you're standing in a, in a house that's off gassing all kinds of chemicals. That's, you know, that that's going to be a CBA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then again, you know, you're, you're in, you're in an immune system that's been destroyed from lack of sleep. So yeah, you've got you got to think which is you know which is the the first thing that you can attack. So well, speaking of that, um, so you have the gear, you have the the environment. Um, well, I think it was Tanya that that uh, connected us originally, but Tanya Cronin has Responder wipes. I I absolutely love her product. There was another one, Action Wipes, and sadly I just found out they they're no longer in business. So Tanya to me is the go to person, but she she has a decom wipes. I always use those after the fires. Um, and I've had the, the healthy firefighter guys from Sweden on the show. What are, what are your observations on, you know, the whole clean cab philosophy as far as doing something about the, the areas that we can control on the exposure side? I think that, I think that's back to where even before we had some data on it, it makes logical sense. So do it. Um, I think there's, but then now we have data on it, you know, so if you look at the studies coming out of like Illinois and the, decrease in contamination. So they did a skin study where they looked at, um, you know, they, they did research fires basically, and they 
you know, clean the skin before people went in. And then they had areas with it that they wiped. They were super consistent about how they did it. They did show a significant decrease in carcinogens, especially, you know, if you think about like where you have the thin skin that matters, um, where that's more permeable on the neck is one of the areas that they measured. And they did find, I want to say 64% decrease in carcinogens on those areas. Um, so I think absolutely like it totally makes sense. Just wipe that shit off as soon as you can. Um, and then do all the other stuff too, you know, do the, uh, do the showers, do the, so I think that's, um, I think that's absolutely important. I do think the, I've seen the bags, you know, the, that contain the chemicals, the carcinogens, I've seen that, um, be useful. And I've seen some, some, um, data on that being a good, a good thing. Now, Gavin Horn points out, like, if you have all the gear in there, um, don't, stand over it. Don't put your face over it when you open it and, you know, um, breathe everything in that's been captured in those bags. You don't want that. But I think there are a lot of, a lot of things you can do on the fire grid. They actually did this study where they looked at just gross decon and they looked at, um, oh, they looked at the, like the, um, air, like I, I think of it as a hairdryer, although it's not, you know, just basically blowing off the carcinogens versus washing with water versus, versus washing with soap and water and a brush and found that soap, water and a brush was the most useful. Um, so it, the other thing I think about the wipe, the wipe battles out there that are interesting is how many, um, like claims that everyone claims that they do, you know, I, I was talking to Tanya about, they were someone had said, Oh, well, you can't use the big, um, you can't use the big wipes because then you just wipe it back on. I mean, some of that stuff, like we don't know that that's true. I, I, I find it interesting when people make claims that don't have, and they don't have data to back it up. Um, cause those are some pretty big claims, but I think absolutely it makes sense to, to use them. Yeah. Um, the clean cab, I, I assumed that that was just a great idea that everyone would get on board with. Although I've been interested to hear the people who haven't been on board with it and their concern about, you know, that you would have to rush more to get off the truck or they're going to be bigger injuries, that kind of stuff. I haven't seen data on that. So I don't have, you know, one way or another, I don't have, I do know that Gavin did an interesting Gavin and Denise and Kenny, um, put in that whole crew. I just used their names for all of them. Um, did look at off gassing. And so they off gassing of gear and it did look like there was some off gassing for, I think it was about 15 minutes. So I think that speaks to the, like letting the letting stuff, you know, cleaning it off and then letting it kind of air out before you, um, before you put it in the cab with you. I, it's, but I think it's interesting because I think with a lot of this stuff, like you've got good, better, best, right? So best case scenario, um, you know, you have clean cabs, you, everyone does showers and the gross decon in the field and has wipes and stuff like that. But I think even at the like good, like there are still people that, especially with volunteers that carry their gear in the back of their SUV, you know, right after a fire. And that's, and places where sometimes, so I was on a, a call the other day and someone was saying, you know, I think we've really done it. Like we've, we've got cancer, we've got it figured out. We know what to do. It's getting a lot of attention. There are still departments. I talked to a chief last week who works with their two neighboring departments, volunteer department, really rural area. They don't wear SCBAs. Period. When it's they, not when they're going to like a house that isn't on fire. 
No, no, not at a fire. They don't won't wear it. And you know, you can still see pictures of people like, oh, it's a car fire, so I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna. Yeah, well, we all know that the cars are made of wood and grass, though, so they're not actually that toxic. No, I well. <laughs> And grass and air, that's really, well, so, but then that's another thing. Like you look at, cause we're starting to look at wildland firefighters, right? Yeah. And it seems like, ah, oh, you know, they're like, it's like sitting around a campfire. Well, I mean, I know it's not sitting around a campfire. It's a really big campfire. Like, right. It seems like, oh, it's, but it's natural stuff burning. But when I talked to Kim, you know, up in, and her, with the um, assessment tools that she's developed, She's like, well, but that's still, Sarah, when that burns, that's still polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are the same. So, I mean, even that. And those folks have even less protection. You know, they go out and and it's not like they're wearing SCBAs out in the field fighting these fires. So, yeah. But, yeah, people that go, not, not too long ago, there was a department that we um, worked with where the department – couldn't afford, you know, it was a volunteer department really struggling for money, couldn't afford to do the fit test. And so they got basically particulate masks from the hospital. And that's what they, they would do with interior firefighting um, in place of an SCVA. So like, well, in some ways, I feel like, you know, the questions about clean cab and, and gross decon and um, showers and, and wipes and all that stuff is awesome, awesome, awesome. And I think like if you can do best, do best. I think that is best. At least that's what the data suggests right now is best. Um, but I think we've got to pay attention to the fact that, like, there are folks still not using SCBAs at all. Yeah, that, that is insane. And the, 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 comp, the, the kind of comparison I like to use is because, I, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this 15 years. It's only recently the, the, the clean cab kind of uh -huh. the penny drop for me and i'm like yeah of course that makes sense i've been an idiot for all these years you know we know that we stink when we get back from the fires you can smell the next shift which is hours and hours late oh you had a fire last night but you put that into biohazard terms we run a nasty car accident there's an arterial bleed i get covered in blood am i gonna just jump back in the rig no we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> you know ask people to bring you know another uniform we're gonna change right there but when we put stuff on that gives us cancer it changes our philosophy completely we'll walk through the freaking station with that stuff but you wouldn't dare do that with brain matter on your boots you know so but it's just it's reprogramming us and the whole bullshit fucking backdraft I'm a hero, you know, let me, let me touch my special place and think about how heroic I am, that you are going to jump off a rig so fast and run up a ladder that magically has been put up, even though you just got there, and save a child because you had all your shit in the cab is so fictional, is ridiculous. I, I was a Tillerman several years in California and you can't have your pack up there because you're driving in the little tiny box in the back of the ladder, so your pack was at the bottom. It literally takes about seven seconds to swing it over and snap the straps and tighten them and you're ready. So that, that whole naysayer of the clean cab is, is again, Hollywood fucking bullshit versus putting your stuff on the outside, looking at the scene you're about to go into while you throw your stuff on, which is going to make it a damn sight safer and give you an idea of what you're about to do. And then you go and do it. So there, there is no con to this. You know, if you've got it set up right, it's only going to get you home to your, your wife and kids and not bring all that shit back to your home as well, but have you there, you know, when, when they need you versus this facade that, I mean, let's be honest, we don't go to that many structure fires anymore anyway, that someone's going to be hanging off a, a window ledge and it's only because you sprung out like a, you know, a gazelle that you say that person. <laughs> That's just not it. 
Oh, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm picturing gazelles jumping off a fire truck. <laughs> no, you're totally right, though. I mean, you are totally right. And I think, you know, at one point in time, there was people didn't wear, you know, latex gloves to when people were bleeding. Like now, and that's what I hope for a fire service where I think the where I do see the change is like. Now everyone, I mean, you wouldn't think of going to a patient without putting gloves on, right? So I think that it is shifting. I think it takes time. I think you've got the early adopters and then the folks that will follow and then the people who 20 years from now will be shocked. But they'll uh, they'll all be dead from cancer. So, um, yeah, I think... It, but it's not fun to think the other way. Like, it's not fun to think, I'm going to be safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just make that safe the new normal. And I think that, you know, even with the sleep, and I keep going back to that, but people got to understand that if they're well-rested, they're going to be much better firefighters. And it really breaks my heart to think, how many of those firefighters that got lost in a search or fell off that ladder or blew through that red light on the way to the fire and killed that minivan full of kids, how many of those were because of sleep deprivation? Or fucking fell asleep driving. Yeah. There's so bad. Like, if you think about, like, the micro-sleeps, I, that's one of the things that I found most interesting in Walker's book is he talks about the micro-sleeps where, you know, and, like, after I read it, I was like, oh, my God, that's happened to me. Where, like, you're driving and you have that, like, long blank. And that's actually your body sleeping and becoming paralyzed for a few seconds. And he talks in there about, like, the difference between um, – not not that I'm advocating drunk driving, not that he was advocating drunk driving, but, um, you know, what you see with drunk driving accidents is that as people are driving, like, and they see something coming up, like it's that delayed and the, you'll see a swerve. And what they are seeing with the sleepy, the, the sleepy driving and those like Microsoft body really is just paralyzed. So it's like these fatal head on head on collisions. Um, because even if you have like that second of awareness before you can't swerve because your body is like in desperate mode and is trying to get any of that strength back. And so, and so he talks about the numbers of deaths related to, um, deaths related to sleepy driving versus alcohol driving and that it, how much bigger is now granted think about if you're like drunk and tired, it's, I, again, I'm not advocating drunk driving, but if you think about some of the folks you see coming off shift after a busy night or a busy, God forbid, 72 fucking hours in a row, I've seen people work that and you, they're like catatonic the last day. And then they're going to drive home for a two hour drive. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I had uh, Alison Brager on the, the show, Major Alison Brager, and she's with the Army and she was one of their sleep rate researchers. And she was called into, I think it was Fort Bragg. Um, because the one of the special force qualifying events, the instructors were you know there. I mean, obviously, when they're they're pushing these guys through sleep deprivation, these guys are also up for at least for you know twenty four hours, and they were driving through the mountains of uh, North Carolina to come back and and driving off the the mountains, you know, so that so. Yeah, that's a bad thing. Yeah, I can't imagine any training is worth that. No, no. And that's the thing. You want to create an environment that makes people thrive. So wanting a change in shifts is not weakness. It's not, oh, I can take it. You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. No, you want to be the most elite version of yourself. So you are able to, to you know, to, to save that person from that building once you've actually put your, your back on properly. Well, 
in sleep while you're dead, actually, um, sleep chronic sleep deprivation, even of a few hours a night, is linked to earlier death. So, like, you get a chance to sleep when you're dead even earlier if you're not sleeping. Yeah. Well, that's what Kirk, Dr. Kirk Parsi, was saying was 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 crazy. I, I, he must have found the research with with us because the twelve year was one he studied, and he's like they absolutely correlated with people who were reliant on Ambien. Because they're not getting that restorative sleep. They're basically unconscious. And that was also about a 12-year shorter life cycle. Isn't that crazy? So sleep when you're dead and you get to sleep earlier because you will be dead earlier. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather sleep. I'd rather sleep and live longer. Mm-hmm. I like the whole waking up part. That's always good. The not being yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah. That is nice. I'm happy every day that I wake up. Yeah. Not that is fantastic. All right. Well, I want to I want to shift a little bit to make sure that we cover a very important topic that that you talk about, um, and that is the the gender risks. I know, especially in the cancer area, sadly, you know, we, we've kind of done our women a disservice. We focus on testicular and prostate and a lot of these male cancers, but we don't talk about you know the ovarian and the breast cancers. So, um, what are the 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 things that you observe now between the risks uh, between the different genders? So I think that it, it, it's, it only makes logical sense that if you have endocrine disrupting chemicals that are um, likely contributing to prost- increased risk for prostate cancer, that those same um, endocrine disrupting chemicals would, would affect a female's body and her reproductive system the same. Um, the reason I think that there's not better data out there uh, is just because of numbers. And there was a study that found increased risk of breast cancer, but it was with men. And it was just because there weren't women in that study or a very small sample of women in that study. There's awesome work going on out in San Francisco. Um, and it's a great, they've done it like a community-based participatory research. So some of their firefighters are actually on the study as principal investigators. They partnered with this awesome team out there and they're looking at um, at women's exposure to carcinogens and how that is probably linked, likely linked to breast cancer. Um, It's, it's fascinating, but I think all the reproductive, like it makes logical sense that it's all the reproductive cancers. Um, So I think we'll see more data on that moving forward. I mean, I'm convinced just anecdotally that there is a relationship, but trying to quantify it, that's the challenge is, you, know, you have to get enough women and their exposures and all that kind of stuff. Again, why I'm so excited about the work Kenny and his team are going to be doing because we will get those women in the sample and then have data on it and then it'll we can use that. There are a few states that do that include breast cancer in their presumptive laws, but it's not many. I want to say like four or five. So it, it, they've been like a wildly understudied, if you look at like gender differences in the fire service, wildly understudied, which makes sense. Like we had in our early study, so our first study we had, the first cohort study we did, we had like 799, I think, and um, peat firefighters. And I think uh, less than 50 women. And then the second study was over 1,000 firefighters, a national study, and again, a, a really small number of women. And so when we try to publish that, because we were looking at things like cardiovascular risk factors, the editors at these journals would say, you know, you have to take the women out because you can't make statistical comparisons between men and women. So we don't know if it's really different or not. So just make it focused on men. And what we've ended up with, you know, I mentioned 70% of firefighter health research has been done in the last decade, um, is that almost all of that has been focused on men. Um, but the good news is there's more focus now. I know with FEMA, like with the, their funding, they if you're going to get funding, you have to talk specifically about how you're going to 
make sure that women are represented and um, ethnic and racial minorities are represented. And there is more. We've been funded to do two studies, one from NIH and one from FEMA to look at the health of women firefighters um, and, a, and a couple other groups that are that are looking at that. So in two dissertations where the focus has been specifically women in the fire service. So more data is coming. Um, and, it, you know, we, we talked earlier about the that it's related to everything. The other thing we've looked at with women is reproductive health and the risk of miscarriage. We just published on that um, and found a high rate of miscarriage among women in the fire service and then also high rate of preterm labor compared to the general population numbers like what's out in published literature. So, it, and again, I think it's important to focus on kind of gender specific stuff because I think it then kind of wraps back around and it's um, from that and based on that and some anecdotal evidence and, and suggestions from the fire service, We've actually started looking at health, uh, reproductive health of men in the fire service, and like, if it's affecting women and their reproductive health, isn't it affecting men and their reproductive health? And lo and behold, a study out of somewhere in Europe, I want to say the Netherlands, but I might be making that up, um, just published on fertility issues. This was really a cool study. Um, where they looked at fertility issues and people seeking fertility treatment and they looked at firefighters in their cohort compared to um, firefighters compared to other occupational groups and found, I want to say 46%, somewhere around 46% increased risk of fertility issues among firefighters or they were 46% more likely than to be getting fertility treatments when you look at people who are getting fertility treatments. So like, again, all back to like all the underlying risk factors, sleep, shift work, fitness, nutrition, carcinogen exposure, heat exposure. <sighs> like I said, perfect storm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, speaking of uh, fertility, I know this isn't directly related, but one of the huge known things now is is how men and women, their testosterone is absolutely destroyed. And, and I've talked about this a lot. I've still yet to meet a firefighter, a male firefighter, whose who's, uh, testosterone on shift is, is more than about 300, you know, and, and there's that scale and Kirk talked about how that was made. You know, the bottom of that scale is the 80-year-old the sedentary man in the study. So the doctors aren't aware of that. So these 25-year-old men are going in and their test is 250 and they're like, oh, no, you're fine. You're within range. And they're wondering, A, why they have no energy, but B, you know, I'm sure that there is obviously it's the same, you know, part of the anatomy. There's got to be a correlation between that and the ability of the sperm to function properly, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so then you look at testosterone. Denise Smith is um, actually looking at that issue and she's looking at like testosterone use, like um, uh, using, you know, added testosterone and the relationship between being on that as a supplement and septal wall thickness. So then what's the relationship with cardiovascular disease, either being high or low or, um, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that in talking to, so this team that we're, we're trying to get together a team to look at um, fertility issues among men, but also to look at um, child off, or offspring, health of, of children of firefighters. And the, one of the aims in that study is looking at sperm epigenetics. And so there's actually a researcher who's out of Utah who has proposed to look at basically sperm before recruits are exposed to fire and then after they've been exposed to fire. And do you see differences in things like motility and the epigenetics of sperm, like from that exposure? And he fully anticipates that there, you know, when you talk to people outside this field and you're explaining kind of like the whole spectrum of, of exposures, 
um, they're like, oh, yeah, I would fully expect to see a difference. Um, and who knew there were people that their entire job is studying sperm epigenetics? That's awesome. I wonder if they have little sperm posters up in the, that office. I don't know, but I do think that that would be an interesting dinner conversation. Like, oh, what do you do? I am a banker. What do you do? I study sperm. Mm -hmm. I like to bring my work home. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. We were having this conversation among the investigators. We're talking about like getting what do we what do you need to to give someone as a participant incentive to get them to donate their sperm. And I was like, well, I'm going to do some focus groups with the recruits on a different topic. I'll just ask them. So we do this focus group. We're doing um, awesome department. Focus group's going awesome. We give them a T-shirt like, hey, thanks for your participation and, and sitting down and talking to us. So I ask them. I'm like, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but let's talk about your sperm. Um, and said, so, you know, what would it take for you to be motivated enough to donate your sperm, you know, a couple different times to to answer these research questions. <laughs> and you know, the general consensus by the end of the time was, you know, that they're invested in this, if it's gonna affect sperm, they really are interested in this. But this one guy recruit stands up and he goes, ma'am, possibly another t-shirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> His team was like, do we need to like give him a hundred dollars? But I'm like, we, I caught, went, got back on the next conference call and I'm like, apparently a Tribland t-shirt is plenty for sperm. <laughs> I'd say that's one of the, the sayings. Fine, I'll do anything for a t-shirt. <laughs> and we've got nice t-shirts. I mean, like, if, I, if I'm going to ask for your sperm, I'll give you a fucking badass t-shirt. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, uh, I, I want to transition to, to one more area before we do some yeah. closing questions. But um, the, the mental health, but you mentioned alcohol. So I'd, I'd rather focus on that a little bit. That to me is another elephant in the room. I had a great, great uh, conversation with a friend of mine, Chad, who was so courageous and told his story of, of actually a pretty traumatic early life and then alcoholism in and out um, until recently where he came out the other side. But I think that really is. I, I, I'm very aware of me leaning on that as my crutch. I think it, it's it's kind of on, under control, but I'm definitely aware of when it tries to kind of creep over as well. But, you know, I've seen, you know, many, many people that rely on that very heavily when they get off shift. So what is your observation of, of that issue in the fire service and first responder population? So you look at rates of alcohol use, and this is in more than one of our studies, um, and then also consistent with what other researchers are finding in other groups, so I don't think it's a selection bias with our studies, very high rates of binge drinking and heavy drinking in the fire service. Um, it, and what's interesting about that around that topic, I mentioned the early qualitative work we've done. They often under-recognized as high rates of drinking. So when we asked the question, do you think the fire service, you know, firefighter and first responders drink more than the general population? The answer was often no. It seems like we drink the same as like the bankers or anyone else. If you look at the numbers, it's, it's one of the highest occupational groups in terms of alcohol consumption, in terms of binge drinking, heavy drinking. Um, so it's not, but I think there's kind of like a confirmation bias, right? If everyone around you is drinking, um, a case of beer a night, then a case of beer doesn't seem like a lot. And if you're drinking half a case, it seems like you're not drinking that much. So I think it's not, you know, there, if it depends on kind of like who you're around and what you're looking at. So I think if you hang out with a whole bunch of other firefighters who drink their asses off while they're a fantastically fun group, most people don't drink like that. Um, and so I think that, that it is high rates. I think often it's not recognized as a coping mechanism. You know, there are some things where it's like just 
you know, convenience if you're off shift, uh, you know, 20 days a month with the same firefighters that you're on shift with and everyone else is at work, you know, let's meet up and work on the car and, and have a case of beer or let's t- go to the, you know, take the boat out and drink, whatever. But a lot of times when I talk to people about, do you think, see it as a coping mechanism, this was a consistent theme in the qualitative. I would ask that question and I would hear this. No, I don't think I, I don't think I use it to like cope. Like if I've had a bad day, maybe the next morning I'll go home and have a couple of beers, but not like as a coping mechanism. And I'm like, that's the fucking definition of a coping mechanism. Like that is what you're doing. But I think people don't see it as that. They just see it as what they do. Um, but if you have to go home and have a drink cause it's been a rough day, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I'm a drinker. Um, and I often, when I've had it like a shitty day and I fucking sit at my desk and type stuff all day long, um, I'll go home and be like, God, I can't wait to have a glass of whiskey. I mean, not now cause I'm pregnant and that would be irresponsible, but in general, you know, I will, and that is a coping mechanism if you're using it as a way to kind of relax or unwind. Um, but I think it's not often not recognized as that. And I think it's often not recognized. I think the norms around drinking in the fire service are really skewed for what's, you know, what's healthy and where you increase risk. And again, back to how all this shit's tied in together. You know, when we ask people about the days that they drank on average, they were consuming about a big, big max worth of calories of alcohol. I mean, like that's a lot of fucking calories to drink. But I, I can absolutely tell you I've consumed a Big Mac's amount of calories of alcohol without even, like, giving it a second thought. You know, oh, it's, you know, we were just sitting around drinking wine all night or we were drinking whiskey all night. And um, so then I think that plays back into why do we see the obesity epidemic the way we do? You know, why are we seeing some of these issues? I think you can't consistently drink a Big Mac's worth of calories from alcohol without that being an issue you know playing into um your overall health yeah so so. yeah and i agree and actually if you see someone with a belly in england we refer to that as a beer belly that's that's what it's called because you know it's usually from being in the pub every night yep which is fine i mean that's and that's the other side of it is like i don't think i'm definitely not an advocate of we need to all be teetotalers like no one should drink ever like that would be incredibly sad to me um but I think you do have to think about it and think about how much you're consuming, when you're consuming. And like you said, when is it kind of getting out of hand? Like when I think people are horrible behavioral health wise, alcohol, but in general behavioral health, I think people are horrible at judging their own, um, their own regulation, like where they're at. I think you have to be pretty depressed before you feel like you're depressed. You have to be pretty, you know, having pretty severe symptoms of post-traumatic stress before you, identify it as that. And I think most people, when they get hit the point where they're like, I really need to address this alcohol issue are pretty far gone before they see it as an issue. So I think, you know, we've got to think through how we recognize that in ourselves and how we talk to other people about it when you see them kind of struggling, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, that's, you know, again, filling a void for a lot of people, I think, and, and whether it's the fatigue, you know, or the things that they've seen, or just the, the chronic beatdown of, of years and years. But um, you know, that and the opiates that we're seeing a lot of abuse as well is, is really just, just filling a void that can ultimately be addressed with counseling. But most people don't put two and two together and realize that an alcohol consumption issue is actually related to a mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think it often is. I mean, that's what we see in our, um, 
in our data. In fact, I'm working on an article on that right now about what we see, you know, the relationship between alcohol use and folks who have a, um, you know, who are in the range of concern for symptoms of depression or in the range of concern for, for post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, you do see them leaning on alcohol pretty um, at, at, at a pretty consistently high rate. I mean, statistically significant increased um, use of those substances. So, yeah, I, I think it's something that needs to be watched. And I don't think, you know, I think you mentioned therapy and I absolutely, you know, I, I said, I told you at the beginning, I was a, a therapist in my previous life. I think therapy is awesome. Um, I think that it can be really helpful. I think not every firefighter needs therapy. I think a lot of on the behavioral health front, I think there gets a point where, where people do need that. And, you know, to be honest, I think everyone, if you've never been to therapy, go, it's awesome. You get to sit and talk about yourself for 50 minutes at a time. And like people are just, this person sitting across from you just listens to you. It's fantastic. But I think that, you know, what we do see on the behavioral health side is fire service is pretty resilient too. And they're pretty good. That's why like around the peer models for behavioral health, I think are so important. I think we have to tell, teach people one, what to look for in other people, but teach people to be able to listen and hear each other and, you know, use those. I think the, the, I think the best benefit of the fire service is the kitchen table, like the ability to sit around, talk to other folks who get it. Um, and I think a lot of times that's what people, that's, that's what they need before they need therapy. They need just to be heard and to have people that understand them. I think on the other hand of that though, like I think that's the biggest strength of the fire service and it works beautifully until it doesn't. We had a paper that we put out recently. It was from our women's data where we looked at, cause if you look across the board, higher rates of things like uh, depression symptoms and post-traumatic stress and anxiety symptoms among women in the fire service, which then you're like, well, shit, then maybe women just aren't made to do the job until you look, we had this great data set of more than 2000 women and we stratify it by their experience of discrimination and harassment and found that the women at the high end of the range who, who were basically in, in unwelcoming environments, um, that's where you saw the issues. And so all that protective effect of the kitchen table in the firehouse, if you basically bring people in and treat them like shit and don't include them in that, like brotherhood, sisterhood, we're all in this together, um, it really fucks with their head, physical and mental health. On the other end of the spectrum, women who were brought in and didn't experience that, their numbers were like right on with what the number prevalence numbers we see with men in the fire service. So like you bring a female in or a minority in and you treat them like shit, they're not going to do well. You bring them in and you just treat them like with respect, novel idea. They are no more or less fucked up than men in the fire service. Like it affects them the same. And we don't have that data for men yet, although we're working on a study right now to do that. And I think we're going to see the same thing. You know, the folks who are, who come into the fire service, but are not really integrated into that and into the, you know, familiness of it. I think that's where you see it, you know, works beautifully until it doesn't type of thing. Yeah. So no, yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that there's that, that tribal thing, you know, you, you're part of something and, and I think that's why they probably did a lot better, you know, a few decades ago. And we've, we've lost that in society. We've lost that with devices. We've lost that with stations that have individual dorms, even though I think from the sleep side, those are absolutely incredible. 
But yeah, I mean, that that's why I think the peer support model is working so well because it's getting firefighters to talk to firefighters. And I couldn't agree more with the, you know, the, the feeling outside that tribe. And I think the, the organizational stress too, these people that work in these departments that are just fucking awful. They have idiots at the top that are causing stress every single day. And I've worked for both sides of that spectrum, so I can attest. You know, unwanted stress and those as well can also, you know, cleave that, that cohesion in, in a department. So having that, that close dinner table where you can offload there, not only after an event, but also, you know, you just happen to, to notice that, you know, one of your, your firefighters is just not the same. They're on edge or whatever. Well, because you're all together, you notice and you find out they just, you know, their, their kid's sick or, you know, something horrendous, but you're, you're able to watch each other. But if you're hiding in corners of a department or, you know, your face is in your phone the whole time, then you're not going to notice until one day someone walks in and tells you, hey, we've got another funeral to go to. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's um, it's it's challenging and it's challenging with like the generational differences and, you know, how people connect and interact and all that. But um, but I just think that's I think that's the beauty of the fire service. That I think that's why people um I think that's why there's such an identity to being in the fire service. Like you're in the family. I think the best thing I say when I'm trying to talk people into, or, you know, consent them to be in a study is, you know, say I grew up around the fire service. So, you know, you don't, and they're like, Oh, okay. Okay. Cause you're in it. Like growing up when we went on trips and stuff, senior spring break, my dad goes, he let my sister, um, older sister and I drive down to Florida by way of new Orleans which probably wasn't the safest thing in hindsight, but he goes, okay. He's like, well, girls, if anything happens, find the closest firehouse. Tell them, you know, tell them I'm up here in Overland Park and, and they'll take care of you. And it's fucking true. You know, like you can be in any city in the world. Oh, public service announcement. Your kids don't want to visit firehouses when you're on vacation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but it happens all the time. But seriously, like you walk in and, oh yeah, we're, you know, and you're part of the family. So I think that, you know, maintaining that and using that is, is what, what works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could talk for another two hours easily, but I want to do some wrap up questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I always ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or completely different. Um, so because I'm such a fan of Dr. Walker's why we sleep, everyone needs to read that book. It will scare the shit out of you, but it will make you prioritize your sleep. So I love that one. Um, I also have been reading cause I've been doing the, what can I answer to? Oh, please. Many as you want. Cause the other one, um, that I've been reading recently that my, my sister, who's uh, an attorney in Chicago sent me, um, uh, for w- dealing with like the health of women and kind of what women in the fire service experience for any woman out there, brave not perfect was one of the best books that i've ever read in my life and i mean i think it generalizes to everyone about like not being you don't have to be perfect it's more about you know being brave and taking risks but um you know it's written by the woman who uh started girls who code and it's just a really fantastic book too so those are my two excellent now do you have any contact with dr walker I don't, you know, I, um, have, I'm just finishing up his book and I didn't realize I would be such a fan, but I'm kind of like total fangirl. Yeah, I think it's awesome. He's one of the people I've tried to try to get hold of even through some other sleep people. But yeah, he, he's like a ghost. He really is. He's, he's impossible to find. So I'll get him one day. I'll sneak behind his bushes or something and, and grab exactly. him. Exactly. Like That's a spider not- monkey. Oh. <laughs> 
No, I just actually had a, I'm just presented with, um, damn, her name is escaping me. She's from Harvard, but she lives out in California. Um, this is embarrassing, but she, she does a lot of sleep research and I love her work too, but she was, she actually also recommended his book. So I was like, I am definitely on the right track. Brilliant. He just does a great job of, of making the science interesting. Yeah. And it's funny. Like his, his, uh, I would love to talk to him because his, his writing is fucking hilarious. Like as, as funny as a synthesis of, um, peer reviewed medical literature can be, it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> and he's a, a fellow Brit too. That's the other thing. So Perfect. I'll, I'll get him one day. Um, all right. So the same question, but a movie and or a documentary. Oh, that one's harder. Just favorite movie. It doesn't have to be about what That's, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, any, anything at all. Oh, God, I don't even know. I watch Sing a lot, but that's because of a three-year-old who's obsessed with it. Um, it's a good movie, though. Oh, it's a really fantastic movie. If you're going to have to watch a kid's movie, that's a, mo- if, uh, that's a movie to watch because it's hilarious, even if you're not a kid. Um, but favorite movie? Ugh. Actually, probably Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Brilliant. Yeah. Watched it when I was a kid. So we watched it all the time. Documentary. I think that documentary on... Uh, I actually think the documentary on the Fire Festival is fascinating. Did you, have you seen that? Of, at the one FYRE? FYRE. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I haven't yet. I keep, is it, isn't that the party that never happened as it was called? Yes. Okay. It's a fascinating documentary because it's, it's a fascinating commentary on like just society i think i actually had a um so we're hosting here in kansas city in a couple of weeks a big conference on, and i my sister is hosting a party and she's calling it fire f-y-r-e kc because i started inviting people before she planned the party but i think <laughs> it's gonna happen excellent so all right well then the next question is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world you need to get Dr. Walker on one. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other one that, that I would, that I think you would love talking to is um, Kenny Fint with NIOSH because of the cohort study and like just talking about that cohort study and what the plan is and all that kind of stuff for anyone from his group. His whole group's awesome. But that is, I think when I look at like the, the big picture view, I think that's the, the next game changer for the, for the fire services, that data set he's creating. Excellent. Yeah, that would be a good good conversation. Um, all right. So that, nice guy. Brilliant. Um, so the very last question before we talk about where we can find you, what do you do to decompress when you're not researching and carrying a baby? And you know? Drink whiskey, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> not now, not now. Um, D, I, you know, my family, I love just spending time with family, with uh, my husband, 12-year-old and 3-year-old, and then with my wider family with the, uh, you know, I mentioned I've got all the siblings and we all, most of us live pretty close. So there's kind of nothing better than just sitting around with family and making fun of each other and laughing. And one of my sisters has a pool, so the sisters will get together and float in the pool and talk about life, you know, stuff like that. That'd be it. Brilliant. Now, Crosby has Down syndrome, but my gym owner um, in CrossFit here, um, they had a little girl who has Down. So we do the Gigi's Playhouse fundraiser every year. And we have the Special Olympics team. Quite a few of those young lads had uh, had Downs as well, have Downs, should I say. Um, what What was the impact on you? And, and tell me some of the amazing things about having a, a little Downs boy or girl. 
that would have to be a whole another podcast. No, we, um, to, to capture all of it. So we got a prenatal diagnosis at 20 weeks. And I will say at the time, I thought it was the worst day of my life. Like I really, the, like the fear that you have from that and the guilt that you have from being fearful and the grief. I mean, it just like you would lay, I would lay awake at night or I'd wake up in the night and not remember why I was sad and then would remember. And I would just lay there sobbing. It was horrible. And, um, I am glad I had a prenatal diagnosis because I feel like I got through that. And then, you know, Cross was in therapy at four weeks. Um, so we have a ton of early intervention, but I tell you, it has been the best worst thing that has ever happened to me. Like I, he's just opened my eyes to one, a world of advocacy and like education and, um, all this stuff that I never knew was out there. So it's been amazing. Like we've met these amazing families who have gone through all of this with us and, and, uh, you know, like seriously friends for life type of folks. Um, but the other thing is that he just is, it's like you, all expectations of, you have to achieve, you have to do this, you have to, you know, you have to have the smartest kid, you have to have the prettiest kid, you have to have that, like, he's just a kid. And all of that stuff goes by the wayside. Like I, all the, um, you know, is your kid hitting this milestone? Like there was pressure with my 12 year old to like, when we looked at our friends, like, well, she's not walking yet, or she's not, or she talked early or she, and all of that stuff is just like, it comes with Crosby, but it comes when he wants it to come. And it's, okay that it's not it's made me reevaluate my need to like I have to drive I have to do the best I have to I'm like sometimes you just have to sit down and smile and laugh you know sometimes you just have to sit down and chill the fuck out and the other thing that has taught me and I see this with I've read it in other books from other moms and I've seen it um with other kids with down syndrome one there we totally underestimate them like him and his little friends, they're little shits, but they're, they can totally <laughs> manipulate you without you realizing it. Like they'll, you know, he'll act like he can't do something and then he'll, you know, he's, he known how to do it all along, but because you want him to, he, we tried to, t- he wasn't saying mama for the longest time. And so I'd work on it and he'd say, dad, 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 dad. And you know, you're like, Oh, maybe he's just, you know, his, his cognitive development is slow is so we worked on the M sound for a long time. And I'm like, can you say mama? And after like two weeks, he'd look at me and he'd go, mm, dad and laugh. And I was like, you <laughs> are an asshole. But, but the other thing, the one other thing that I think has been like the most life changing is it's like living with shallow hell. Like he looks at people and he can light up a room when he walks in. Like he just has this infectious smile, but he comes in and it's like, he looks around the room and he knows who needs to be loved that day. And it doesn't matter. We walked my, this is my best example is my most concrete example, I guess I should say, because a lot of it is just like this where you walk away going like, Oh my God, did that just happen? Um, we walk into a hotel in Seattle and there's this woman who sees him and beelines for him. And she's gorgeous. I mean, just all made up designer clothes, hair was perfect. Makeup was perfect. Like just a stunning woman. And she's like, Oh my God, you're adorable. What's your name? And I'm like, Oh, his name is Crosby. And he's not giving her the time of day. And I'm like, Crosby, can you say hi? And he's like, just trying to not make eye contact with her. And I mean, I'm sure there's nothing wrong with her, but, um, he sees a guy in a wheelchair that kind of looks like he might've been homeless. 
um, and just wandered into this hotel over kind of sitting by the wall. And he just toddles right over to him and lifts his arm, arms up to him. And the guy picks him up. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. And he sits, Crosby sits on his lap for a few minutes. Crosby gives him a hug. He's talking to him and he's, you know, how old is he? And we're kind of just chatting. Crosby gives him a hug and he's like, you don't know how much I needed that. And Crosby just gets down and toddles away. And I'm like, I would have never seen that guy. I would have never even noticed him there. I would have walked right past him because I would have been like, God, that woman's beautiful. But it's like Crosby sees that guy. You know, he stops to smell the roses. And when I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. He's like, no, I want to play with this stick because this stick is really cool. So it's made me realize that I probably have been a little too focused on the wrong stuff all along. Absolutely. That's what I've observed as well. I've made the, you know, the, the observation, you know, when you ha have kids that are very small, they find the joy in a stick, in a, in a bowl, in a piece of chalk, whatever it is. And I'm like, what, what, what do we get? When do we get to that point as we start growing where now we need an iPhone? Everything else is lame. You know what I mean? And that's what I see a lot with the Downs community is they can be 40. And still just be so proud of themselves if they, if they, you know, do a ring row in the gym or, or sit there and just, you know, like watching everything go by. And, and yeah, there's so much to learn from them. It's incredible. It, it, it really, it is. It's made me reevaluate me and it made me reevaluate my expectations for my 12 year old, you know, and she doesn't have to be, you know, she's a bright, bright kid, but you don't have to be perfect. Like that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. No, no, that's why I love the, the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, you know, when you, when you get to the, the, you know, postpartum years, because it would say, you know, might be able to do this, but all the way down to should, should, should be able to do this, you know, and as long as they fall somewhere in that spectrum, I'll never forget one of my, my friends was like just losing his mind because his kid couldn't walk yet. And I turned to him and I said, I've never seen a 18 year old man still crawling it will happen eventually so just you know let it happen and you're gonna find that they get he might be a freaking you know genius with a violin and a bit crap at sport or the other way around I mean, that's how we all you know branch off i saw this awesome meme the other day because you know there's a lot of talk about like expectations and there was a meme of a typical kid um who and it says if your doctor can't tell you what this child will do and it has a kiddo with down syndrome next to it um, and it says, then he also can't tell you what she will do. And I was just like, it's so true. Like you have a, it shifts the spectrum of kind of possibilities some, in some ways. Um, you know, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who's, I just adore, but she, when I was pregnant, I said, you know, Crosby's never going to be like a Supreme Court justice or the president. And she goes, well, yeah, but chances are low that would happen anyway. And he's probably also not going to be a crack at it. <laughs> it was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he'll fall somewhere in between, but chances are very good. His sister will fall somewhere in between. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's that one speech that went viral. His name was Frank Stevens. I just looked it up. I would love to reach out to him, but he was the one, I think it was, I don't know if it was in Congress or anyway, somewhere where there was a very large audience, but it was about, you know, not, automatically aborting if you found out that your child has Downs and basically he wouldn't be there. And I forget what position he holds, but he is a, a highly functioning, you know, man in society. And I think it would be a great perspective to get someone, you know, at a grown up age that is, is able to articulate a little bit more and, and talk about that. You know, what if I had been terminated just because you know, my blood work came back a bit crap? Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it's hard. And I, you know, it is hard. There are challenges that I've had raising Crosby that I didn't have with his sister and I don't anticipate having with, with Sawyer, but, um, so it is a challenge and, you know, I wouldn't judge someone who made that choice, but I, gosh, it's just been such a, he's so, and I didn't understand it when I was pregnant, but someone said, it's like traveling with like a little rock star. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I swear everywhere we go, he just draws people to him and people know him that I don't know. Like people will be like, Oh my God, is that Crosby? Are you Crosby's mom? Cause like the babysitter had him somewhere and he met someone at the park and there was a, you know, I'm like, I like, he has this whole little fan club and it's, it, we had the, um, so t- you, we weren't, I wasn't originally sure. Like, do you call normal kids? Like what would we expect if he was normal? And his early therapists were like, Oh, it's called typical. And, so, you know, there's typically developing and then, and so then I'm like, so then he's not typical or he's, and we actually have a, a we're started doing a startup company with the group of kids from his therapy, like the, the other families. And we were calling it everything but typical. Cause it's so true. Like, it's not that they're not, it, they're not typical, but they're anything but and everything but typical, which is cool. But then, then you have to go like, what's typical, you know? Well, exactly. My kid is typical, so. Yeah, exactly, which is a, it's a kind of nice segue back to what you said at the very beginning. When you look at all these studies, like, what is a normal person, you know? Right. No one's really the average on all of it. No. no. You know? That's just the average when you take everyone and add them together. But that means that half the people are more and half the people are less. Exactly. Exactly. On scale. Yeah. Hmm. Brilliant. All right, well. The one last question then, I mean, I've had an amazing conversation. I'd love to do this again sometime down the road. Um, but if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you online? Um, so I'm early to, or I, I'm a way late adopter. So I am on Twitter at Sarah Ann, S-A-R-A-A-N-N-E 71. So I am on Twitter. They can contact me through there. Um, I just give people my email address too, which is S-A-R-A at H-O-P-E-H-R-I.com. So feel free to email me too. Um, I'm sometimes slow on email, but yeah, but that or Twitter or our center, the Center for Fire Rescue and EMS Health Research has a Facebook page. Okay, excellent. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. We've gone over so many different areas and, and your your perspective is very unique. Um, you know, entering our profession as a researcher where, as we said, you know, there really wasn't much going on. Um, you've really got to kind of quantify some of the, the philosophies that some of us have so i really appreciate you taking two hours to to share your knowledge yeah sure no this was awesome this is a lot of fun